0: Hi Moto Enthusiasts and welcome to Motos & Friends, a weekly podcast from the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. I am Arthur Coldwells. This week's episode starts off with Don & Kelly giving us their take on two Yamaha cross-country machines, the WR450F and its smaller sibling, the WR250F. If you're undecided on which off-road motorcycle is the one for you, Hopefully their insight will help clarify your thoughts. In the second segment, Nick, TJ and myself discuss the motorcycle size progression through starting to ride motorcycles up to the expert level. Are you a newbie to the sport and wondering which way to go? Maybe you've been riding off-road for years and want to take to the street. Which size bike might be right for you? Obviously we can't give you definitive answers to this highly personal question, but hopefully after you've heard about our individual journeys, you might have a better idea of where to start. From the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling, we all hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hi everyone, this is Don Williams. I'm editor of Ultimate Motorcycling Magazine, and I'm here with Ultimate Motorcycling Associate Editor, Kelly Callan. And we have been dutifully testing the 2021 Yamaha WR450F and WR250F all summer. And we're here to talk about how it was. And we can tell you right away that we had a lot of fun. So you may not be familiar with what a WR250F and WR450F are. And basically, they're kind of odd motorcycles in the uh, Yamaha range. Uh, Originally, they were green sticker bikes which meant that they they could be registered in California written all year long. And that was due to emissions restrictions and sound restrictions. Well, as the emissions restrictions got stiffer in California, Yamaha abandoned the green sticker, but they still stuck with the uh, EPA standard for sound. So the WR450 is not as corked up as it used to be. It's still quiet, but it's not as, downpowered as it was when it had to meet California emission standards and uh, the other thing that the WR450 and WR250Fs are about is that as they are on this as you see them on the showroom floor they're trail bikes they're not really race bikes they have softish suspension the power again is a bit corked up because of the EPA rules but lurking inside there is the full power of a YZ450FX and a YZ450F, the motocross and the off-road race bikes. But the big secret is it has that wide ratio transmission. The YZ450 and 250FX off-road racers have close ratio transmissions for racing in the, uh, the woods racing like the Grand National Championship uh, and Enduro racing that they do more on the East Coast and the South. Whereas the WR can be uncorked, and with the wide ratio of transmission, it can work much better in the desert because you have low, low, and a high, high. And so that is where the WR450 kind of fits. Again, it's, it's a, and the WR250F, where the two of them fit, is that they can be used as trail bikes and as a platform for a race bike, mainly because of the wide ratio of transmission. And even though they have softer suspension than their full race equivalents, they also have the same suspension components so they can be revalved to full race potential. I rode the WR450F exclusively and Kelly rode the uh, WR250F exclusively. Uh, The WR450F is the big news this year. Uh, The 250F is basically the same motorcycle as it was uh, the previous year. Whereas the WR450F got lots of upgrades. And the upgrades basically were to bring it in line with the YZ450FX Off-Road Racer and the YZ450F Motocrosser. And among the changes that the WR450F gets this year, it gets a new cylinder head, has more aggressive cams, higher compression, larger exhaust header, and a higher flow air filter. So there's more air flowing through everything. And of course that always means more power. Uh, to go along with that the suspension has been updated because the frame is more flexible than last year uh, they changed the thickness of the twin spars the engine cradle TUI, and the engine mounts and the top triple clamp all changed to make the bike flex a little bit more so it's not as uh, fatiguing when you're riding uh, off-road terrain which is always unexpected bumps and things like that and you want to you want some flex in the bike. You don't want it to be too rigid or it'll beat you to death. Uh, other changes, they, it has a stronger front brake thanks to a more rigid front caliper plus new pads and a disc. And there's a new multifunction enduro meter. And I'll talk about that a little bit later because it's, it's kind of funny how that works. So that's what the WR450F has. Again, the WR250F uh, still remains basic on the YZ250FX Off-Road Racer and the YZ250F Motocrosser. I'm going to let Kelly Callan talk a little bit first about her experience on the WR250F.
2: Okay, um, thanks, Don. As as you know, we've been having a lot of fun riding these bikes um, out in some of our favorite areas and uh, have been attacking. We've been tackling single track um, trails, some Jeep trails, some dirt roads, Uh, a lot of focus, though, on the single track, which is just a lot of fun. And the WR250F is one of my favorite bikes for that. And I'll just say right off the top that it makes me feel like a better rider. And so that's one of the reasons why I think it's so much fun. It gives me a lot of confidence to tackle some of the harder trails that I might want to shy away from with this bike. The suspension it just it's like bring it on so i really enjoy really enjoy the w the wr250f
1: as kelly said we were on single track we we're on more jeep trail type trails and we we're on wide open dirt roads so we could you know get some high speed action going in and wr450f definitely is capable of some high speeds now as i said the wr450f is corked up a bit It still puts out around 50 horsepower when you rev it up. And it has an incredibly wide power band that runs from about idle to 11,000 RPM. So with that really wide power band and the wide ratio transmission, you're always able to make the bike work in any sort of situation. The other interesting thing about the motor that they upgraded this year is how it makes power in kind of different little areas from down low, you can, keep the bike, just run it at slow speeds. I ride single track, not particularly fast. Not, I'm not poking along, but I'm also not riding like race pace on the narrow tracks. A lot of the single tracks that we ride in the uh, Los Padres National Forest, if you overshoot a turn, you're in big trouble. It's Sometimes it's a cliff, sometimes it's almost a cliff. And you kind of want to make sure you stay on the track. And uh, I think one time Kelly went off and that was a, kind of an experience Exciting experience. <laughs> uh, yes, I did. <laughs> fortunately, it was in a spot where we were able to, to fish it out fairly uh, efficiently. So the motor on the Yamaha soft down at the bottom, easy to ride, and then all of a sudden, at about five thousand RPM, as you kick it up, that bike starts to move. And in the throttle is really great because you can at the, again at the low speeds, if you move the throttle, you have good throttle control. Nothing happens excitedly on the bike. Nothing jumps. It It smoothly goes wherever you want to go. However, if you're aggressive with the throttle, it picks right up and takes right off. And then once you get up to 8,000 RPM to 11, the power is pretty flat, but it's a lot of power. You're talking over 45 horsepower through that whole stretch. So basically you can call it flat, but I would call it over rev. Once you get to the 8,000 RPM, that's... Uh, you know, a little bit above where the torque peak is. So you can just run that bike at high speed. Now I didn't do a lot of high speed. As I said, we tested all summer and that meant the desert was off limits because we don't get up at 4.00 AM to go riding. We should actually ride in the afternoon when all the uh, people have gone home. So uh, the the motor's great because you can use it in multiple ways for multiple situations. And again, with the wide ratio transmission, it's only a five speed, not a six, but it's the wide uh, power band makes that makes that work. So Kelly, your bike actually even revs higher than the uh, WR450F, of course, because it's a 250. And what's the motor like on that bike?
2: Okay, uh, same same situation in some ways. It's, it's very uh, docile down at the bottom. There's a lot of smooth power down low, and it's easily tappable, but it's really manageable. And uh, nicely delivered, so it, it's really nice down low, and it's really perfect for a lot of the technical trails that we were riding on. There are a couple of horsepower hits um, between like six and eight, uh, six and eight thousand RPM, and then another one at between ten and eleven thousand RPM. So if you really want to rev it up, there's a lot of there's a lot of power up there, but in the lower range. Where I was mostly riding unless until we got out onto some of the open roads where we could go fast, the power is just really nicely delivered, and it lets lets me pick my way through technical situations, um, even through some of the little rock gardens. There's nothing dramatic happening. You can roll on the the throttle you've got enough power there's enough torque there, lots of great torque down low to pull you through things, but there's nothing that's going to Uh, upset you there's nothing that's going to uh, that needs to be managed quite so much so i really really like the motor on this bike
1: yeah one thing that's interesting is the wr450 and wr250f chassis are very similar uh they didn't they're not two completely different bikes the motors are different they're not just ones not just a sleeve down or d stroke version of the other uh it's it's they're completely independent motors although they're both double overhead cam valve titanium valves as you, you know all the stuff you'd expect on, on a race bike now comes on a on a fairly expensive trail bike and you know keep in mind that these bikes are nothing like the Yamaha TTRs that are true trail bikes these are kind of high performance trail bikes for the people who take their trail riding very seriously not for the people who are just donkeying around with their 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 family and, and uh, they, they want to ride fast And, or have at least the capability of riding fast when they want to ride fast. And uh, a big part of that is the suspension on the two bikes. And as I said, they both have the same suspension, although Cale and I had different experiences with it. I weigh 180. And so the suspension's set up just about right for me. And this suspension setup for the WR450F is certainly going to be a challenge. Because keep in mind that this is a motorcycle that's designed to be ridden at 10 miles an hour through incredibly uh, technical terrain, or wide open at 60, 65, 70 miles an hour across the desert. So to set the suspension up so that it works everywhere is not easy. Fortunately for me, it worked. Uh, the suspension is soft, and that's important on the single track because you could easily get bounced around if you had that suspension set up for the desert. Yet, even at high speeds on dirt roads, I didn't really have any problems. Now I didn't have any killer g-outs that I mean, you can go through the suspension clearly and i'm not doing any whoop skipping i'm not doing any triple jumps i'm you know i do jumps small jumps keep it mostly on the ground i'm mostly riding the trails riding the dirt roads uh jumping where there's fun places to jump but not getting any kind of crazy air and if you want the crazy air you're probably better off wearing a yz 450 fx because that's a race bike again this is a trail bike a high-end trail bike, a sophisticated trail bike, but still, in its heart, it's a trail bike that, again, has that little secret alter ego that it becomes Superman, and it could be a full-on race bike for Baja or the desert or uh, a variety of other situations where you would need a wide ratio transmission. Part of the magic of the suspension is the KYB fork. To me, by far, the best off-road fork that you can get. It's a speed-sensitive system, so what it does is it's nice and soft is at low speeds in the front but as you pick up speed it firms up as it goes through the stroke and how fast it goes through the stroke and it's you don't feel like you're on a mushy bike when you're flying across the desert floor uh, but at the same time you don't feel like you're being beaten to death or losing traction or front end traction for turning when you're on uh, a dirt road single track or a rough jeep trail and that's what you you really want is you have the suspension for all needs and of course you can always fine tune it to however you like i was happy with it out of the box the way it was in the stock worked perfectly for me i uh i mean changing the settings is a bit of a pain in the butt because the handlebars in the way there's not like a clear shot for a screwdriver to go in and and adjust the, the fork settings it's doable but it's not as easy as i would like it to be uh but for kelly She's one hundred and fifteen pounds, so it's life's a bit different for her,
2: right. So I think the the first time out we ha- it was still out of the box suspension, and it was it was too stiff for me. Um, I was feeling a bit bounced around and wasn't able to go to go as fast as I would like on some of the the really rough trails that we were going down. Um after some serious adjustment, it made, all the difference in the world. I felt like I was stuck to the trail, you know, practically, which was which was great. It gave me so much more confidence to pick up my speed, lean into some turns. Um, it was just it was huge. And then I felt like I also got real more benefit of of that KYB fork, so it made it made a big difference.
1: I'm Kelly's uh, suspension tech, and what I did was I softened it up. All the way pretty much the the, the uh, compression damping was way soft because with her light weight, she's not you know resisting much so she needs it to soak up and even with her that uh at the at the softest uh compression damping setting it's still not quite as soft as she would probably like mainly because we didn't have access to changing the spring. you'd have to change the springs to actually get the the suspension perfect for her weight and the kind of trail riding we're doing Again, out in the desert, I think she'd be okay with the spring rate. It might be a little stiff, but not too bad. But on the single track, it's still the suspension's still stiffer than it than I would set it up for her if I were doing it. You know, if I had access to all the modifications that I would I would want. Uh, the, the rear was the same thing, softened up the uh, the compression damping as much as possible, relying on the spring. Now at the same time, the rebound damping front and back, I pumped up. And the reason for that is when the suspension is rebounding and with the, with the kind of the over oversprung at the front and back it springs back too fast with her light weight on it's like a little fly sitting on the, the seat and it's just there's like nothing on the bike and so it's not wanting to bounce back up so by slowing down the rebound damping the bike comes up more slowly and is less likely to bounce up this gives her more traction which she was she talked about it right away when we when we changed it. How the difference in traction, rearward traction, was was the the big part of it. And so that was uh, you know it, it's a re- reminder that setup matters. You know uh, yeah, when you're me and you're kind of the, the average guy, average speed, average weight. It's you're like the Yamaha guy who set it up for you. But when you're an outlier like Kelly, who is 115 pounds, and we're riding on primarily single track. Uh, it makes a big difference to set it up, particularly in one way.
2: Right. And I'll say that it was immediately noticeable. And the thing that was interesting is that you changed the suspension settings after we went riding. And then it was a week before we got back out again. At that point, I had kind of forgotten about that. But as soon as we went down the road and I shifted up into second and, and kind of picked up the speed, I immediately went, oh, yeah, that's why this feels so good so it's it was you know it was, it was huge
1: right and it was uh and actually she was going faster you know uh, i'm a bit faster rider than she is right and so i had to kind of pick it up <laughs> to stay a bit faster than her and so she wasn't like eating my dust so there's like a little space between us so she wasn't uh getting the dust <laughs> the other thing the yamaha wr450f and the wr250 have, has are great tires they don't have the same set of tires but much better than you might find on a, on a you know, a five or $6,000 trail bike. The Yamaha TTR 250 does not have the same uh, tires as on the WR250F. And what do you think of the Dunlops on that?
2: I thought they were really good. We've got the MX3S tires on the WR250F and I felt great. I felt really great. The only time that I, you know, am wanting a little bit more is when we're Fast on a dirt road, going through turns, and really, that's not the tires' issue. That's me. I have to get right up on the tank and get my weight up there to to get some traction on that front tire.
1: Right, and you don't have a lot of weight put up there.
2: Exactly, I'm not exactly. I'm not having as much of an effect as as you are. So, I real and I realize that. So I'm not going to pick on the tires because I think overall the tires are really pretty great.
1: Yeah, the WR450F gets the Dunlop MX33s. And they're a great, you know, they're soft to intermediate tire, but they really worked everywhere. Uh, The trails we ride up in Los Padres National Forest and Angeles National Forest, uh, a lot of them are soft, a lot of them are sandy, but some of them are pavement. (laughs) They are really hard. And so, uh, (laughs) again, the tractability of the motor, you know, it just makes it so much easier to keep traction. And if I wanted to break the back end loose on like a loose turn, you know, steer with the back end on on. Uh, any part of a trail or uh, a road especially it was always super predictable how the back end would come out uh it never came out when i didn't want it to and it, and it always came out when i wanted it to and you could just dial in as much wheel spin as as you wanted and it really really the tires were totally impressive uh, we didn't have anything to compare them to in this case but it's hard to imagine uh, a tire doing more because it did everything that i asked the other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about on the WR450F is that I'm primarily a 250 trail guy. To me, I was kind of always jealous. Kelly was on the WR250F, and that was the bike that, going into this, that I, I was <laughs> would be my preference to ride if, if somebody presented the two of them with me. But this latest WR450F really is a great bike to ride. Uh, it does not, the, the problem with the 450, you kind of think you're going to get overpowered. It's going to be too much bike. Uh, you're going to get worn out. You're not going to be taking advantage of the 450 power anyway. And so why not ride a 250 where you can have a little bit more aggressive feel and aggressive throttle and just a much more fun bike to ride. But the way the WR550 works, it's not a problem. Uh, it's not brutal down at the bottom. You're not like, oh, I cracked the throttle and I go jerking forward and it's like, oh, I can't hold on to this. Super friendly at, at lower throttle. And then you have that mid range that just is just a rocket. And so when the trail opens up a bit, you just get on it. And it's super fun to ride. Maybe I'll roost Kelly a little. And it's just, it's just a great bike to ride, to get that power to the ground or to spin it up whenever you feel like it. If I'm going, if I need to, you know, we have whoops, maybe one or two whoops in a row. I can lift the front end anytime I want. There's no that's the, all you just dial on the throttle boom front end comes up you let the rear end suck up the loop drop it down continue on your way and uh that's it's nice you know the 250 requires a bit of you know a bit more uh bit more throttle and you have to be a little bit more on it to get the front end up compared to the 450 so i might have been well a lot of people i know they like 450 trail bikes people buy like 500s 450s and I was always like, hey eh, man, I like the 250s. But after riding this WR450F, I really appreciate uh, the, the improved, increased amount of torque. And uh, sometimes it actually would even kind of get me to be a little bit lazy when it would be a little bit too technical. I wouldn't get the, the uh, power up where I kind of should have it to like accelerate through a certain area. I just kind of bump, bump, through. So, but as I became more comfortable with the way the power was delivered, And understanding the traction and how it would work, I was able to then put good speed on. We didn't switch bikes at all because I think Kelly would be overpowered by a WR450F. There's really no reason for her to have that much torque with her weight. And so, uh, you know, I I stuck with the 450. She stuck with the 250. But I'll have to steal the 250 out and give it a try at some point because uh, it's a great bike (laughs) that, I can say the YZ 250 FX, the off-road racer, is my favorite off-road bike ever. To me, it's just a fantastic motorcycle. And the WR250F is kind of just a toned-down version of that, so it makes sense that I would like them both.
2: I, You know, and I I certainly never felt like... I I mean, as you said, for my weight, I've got enough power there. Um, I was never feeling a lack of it. And while I like to kind of... uh, put pet put through some technical stuff. when there's some really, <clears throat> there were a few places on the trail, little rock garden patches that we would go through. I actually wanted to get the speed up and just kind of blast through it and there's that confidence, one in the suspension which we've already talked about. But also the power, I can it's you know, I can get on the throttle and it's still a very smooth and controllable power going through also I haven't even really talked about the the handling of the WR250F but it's it's just really sweet the bike's narrow and when I've got some good speed going I can still I can make adjustments so easily just kind of you know just a little shift of the weight Um, bike's really easy to grip with my knees there's so much confidence that comes when I have shifted up and I'm going at a good clip through some technical well, through some rough stuff, but there's enough power from that bike. I'm kind of getting back around to the power. I don't feel underpowered there's always enough there at the right wrist, and I can give it a, a little blip and um, get some more speed out of it and again it doesn't it doesn't hit with any any kind of uncontrollable um, anything that that gets me out of shape so it all comes, it circles back to the confidence that the bike delivers. It's it's why it's one of my favorite bikes.
1: Right, your inseam is, what, 30 and a half inches?
2: 30 and a half. The seat height on this is 37.6. Now, I know it sinks down when I get on it, but not as much as I would like. And that's really my only complaint with the WR250F is just the height, because when I come to a stop, I have to slide my butt off the side to you know get a foot down. Uh, flat and feel you know uh, stable now, of course, the faster I go on the bike, the less I care about the seat height. In fact, the happier I am that I've got more than twelve inches of travel on both ends um, it's great it's really great, but when you're going slow on really technical in fact, the last weekend when we were out, we went through a a new trail that was really tight, so I was going really slow and that was where i was the the least comfortable relative to the height of the bike because you know i was thinking about if i need to dab that's going to be tough
1: yeah this was a trail where it was pretty much full lock to full lock turns through uh through the bushes they weren't it wasn't a woods ride this was actually one in kind of uh less ridden areas of hungry valley which people know as gorman and uh it it was it was it was tight now I didn't have any problems. The bike sags down a little bit more with me on it. Again, the spring rate—if we could get her lighter springs—the bike would have been sitting a little bit lower. Uh, for me, it was is not an issue on that on that particular trail. But it was it was as tight as you could possibly have a trail and still be able to negotiate it. Now she did have hand guards, which was nice, which uh, are accessory guards on it. That's true. I had
2: <laughs> I had hand guard, You didn't you were really enjoying that tight section and saying, oh, this is so much fun, I I love that we found this. And I'm just thinking, I'm happy when we're
1: done with it. (laughs) As far as the handling of the WR450F goes for for me, the magic of that bike is that I can put it where I wanna put it. If I see a spot, a line on the trail, I can make the bike go there. If I need to lift the front end and place it down somewhere else, I can lift it up and place it without having to do any throttle gymnastics. The bike is, it weighs 262 pounds, which is not super heavy, uh, but it's not light either. And so that sounds like more than it really feels like. Again, that motor is doing the work for you, that that it's sweet, it's smooth, and it allows me to go where I want to go. And when I have the confidence that if I see a line, I see a place on the trail, I want to miss a rock, I want to do this, I want to do that, that the bike will handle exactly the way I expect it to and put me where I want to be which allows me to ride with more confidence and ride faster, ride better and ride more relaxed. One of the things that I was concerned about with the WR450F was that it would be fairly fatiguing to ride. And between the the frame flexibility that they've added in, not that I can feel it compared to the old WR450F without back to back, I can't claim, but you kind of get that feel at the end of the day, like, wow, I, I'm not feeling as fatigued. I'm not feeling as beat up as I might have on a bike that was stiffer. So it's, it's a really super fun bike to ride and highly confidence, inspiring, and really kind of the epitome of, of trail bike uh, that, you know, not too loud, still incredibly fast when you rev it up, but also very friendly on the most technical trails that you can find.
2: And I would uh, jump in and say for the the WR250F, I, I feel, well, I've already said, I feel the same way in terms of. It's so confidence inspiring, um, but as, just as you said about you can place the bike where you want. I really feel like the same with the the two hundred and fifty F. It's it's interesting. It's it's two hundred and fifty four pounds, so it's you know not much different in in weight with than the four hundred and fifty. Um, but I can still you know as long as I'm moving, as long as I've, I'm going along at a good clip, I can adjust my line easily and it, it doesn't take much effort at all and then again coming back to the suspension there were certain times where you know well i had the speed going and maybe i got offline a little bit in some of the rocky sections and i always knew that the suspension and the the power from the bike actually were going to carry me through just give it a little more throttle and let it go and um never never had a problem never crashed in fact that was the one time i did Uh, tip over and off the trail was i was as don you have said many times i was going too slow and that was the problem so uh and that's when the bike seemed heavy (laughs) when we had to, to to get it back up on the trail when you're when you're riding it it doesn't feel heavy i will also say i'm kind of shifting gears here well actually speaking of shifting let me let me say about the the gearing on the bike um really nicely spaced Sometimes I kind of wished that uh, first gear wasn't quite so high. And sometimes when I felt like it was, I would shift up into second and, and use the clutch more. Second gear was a really great one for a lot of the trail riding and the technical stuff we are doing. But the shifting is spot on, no false neutrals anywhere. Um, however, starting the bike, it was easier to have it in neutral couple uh, there would frequently be times where i need i'd you know push that starter button at uh, two times third time i'd get it going but it was much happier to to be in neutral
1: yeah i would uh you know ride the bike if we were going to go load it or something and i i noticed that sometimes it just wouldn't start yeah you know on the wr 450f you push that button it starts no matter what the situation no problem the 250 was much more finicky about starting Uh, for whatever reason uh, definitely preferred neutral whereas the WR450F didn't care which is kind of funny you expect it maybe to be the other way the big the big bore big high capacity motor demanding more of the starter would be a little bit more reluctant to start but actually it's not that the WR250 doesn't spin up it just doesn't start right and uh, and you kind of don't expect that with a fuel injected bike and I guess we had not noticed mentioned that but they're both of course fuel injected but that's kind of to be expected now and i will say the fuel injection was fantastic on the wr 450f because i never once had a flame out you know at low rpm if i got on the gas it always went it never went clunk. and other four strokes can do that sometimes that the Yamaha has completely worked that out and it never once stalled i don't I, I never stalled it once it was always there and that's all you can ask from a motor—that's all you get from any motor, yeah, especially off-road.
2: Okay, let me jump in and just say something about the brake. The front brake on the, the WR250F is really awesome. It's strong, but the the engagement is just perfect, and so I really felt confident. I could be, you know, really flying down dirt road, rough dirt road, and then suddenly, whoa, we're we're turning into a little bit of a sandy turn, and I want to get some speed down. And aside from downshifting, it's like I can grab onto those brakes and give it a nice good squeeze. And it's just perfect. It's just perfectly dialed. So I can't say enough good things about, and of course, when you have a a good front brake, again, it's just, it's the confidence you get from it. It's always there. It's not grabby. Um, If you're going down some, you know, narrow uh, single track and Kind of come around a turn and it's like whoa, you know, there's a rock in the middle of the road, in the middle of the trail or whatever, and I need to get on the brakes. I, I never had any concern that I was going to like grab it too hard, so I, I think Yamaha did a great job with that. The rear brake I used very little. um I kind of had to make myself use it just to test it, and that was fine. But mostly it was all about the front brake.
1: Yeah, the WR 450F got a new front brake system this year, and it is highly progressive at the low at low input you get low response it just very slowly starts to ramp up uh, as you increase the pressure so when you are going at the very slowest of speeds there's no chance of unexpectedly locking up the front end or like when it makes that first engagement there any kind of jerk it's just super smooth but as you're going on a higher speed and you pull it in The more you pull it in, it progressively gets stronger and stronger. And it really cranks down uh, at high speed when you need it to stop. And and Mm -hmm. that's, that's great too. I didn't like the rear brake at all. I was, it felt like I was locking it up all the time. And so uh, I just pretty much relied on downshifting to, you know, to slow down the rear. And if I, I would only use the rear brake if I needed to lock it up for some reason. And so that was, uh, you know, if, if it was my bike, I would experiment with different pads. To see if I can make it less touchy for me. Just, it just didn't work for me, and uh, but the front brake was, which is what you use primarily, was just absolutely outstanding, and uh, that was great. Earlier, I talked about the new multifunction enduro meter that the WR 450 has, and it's cool. It's got a, a race setting that gives you the average speed, a timer, and a low fuel warning, which is really nice on a, a EFI bike. It then has a, the normal setting standard setting, which has a speedometer, uh, trip meters, and a clock. Now, that doesn't give me the combination that I want. So attention, (laughs) Yamaha engineers, either have the Don's mode or allow the rider to set up his own mode so that he can have the information that he wants. And what I want is I wanna know my speed, I wanna know when there's low fuel, I like the two trip meters, and I want a clock. Those are the things I wanna see. And I'd even give up. Uh, so what the trip meter? Yeah, I want, those are the four things that I want to see when I'm riding. Uh, the other problem is I actually want to see them. Uh, the the push pull throttle cables. The two cables go right across the front of it. And the only time I could really ever use the dash, it's an it's an L, you know inexpensive LCD design. It's not like a TFT or anything like that. Uh, the only time I could really read it was at a stop when I would push the the, the ca- throttle cables out of the way or or move my head or something so it was, it was kind of disappointed you have this really pretty cool especially with the lo- low fuel info and speedo and but you don't get to really use it while you're riding you only get to use it when you stop so that was it's, it's i'm not sure what the solution to that is i i'm not going to be rerouting my throttle cables and without really knowing what i'm doing and uh but it would be nice if somehow that information can be easier to read while you're writing.
2: And yeah, the, the, well, I was just going to say the 250 has a little bit, 250F has a little bit more information, but it suffers from the same the same problem with the cables across it. You can't see that stuff when you're riding.
1: Yeah, it's a bummer. Like, you kind of want to see how fast you're going when you're going fast.
2: Yeah, I was, I was looking at that when we were charging down the sand wash this past weekend. It's like, okay, how fast am I going? It's like, I can't see that. I can't see that. So it's, oh, well.
1: Yeah, when when you're you know wide open in fifth gear and you're flying through the sand and there's rocks everywhere, you can't be like, oh, let me move my head down here and look and see if I can read that. It's like no way. <laughs> you you can glance once in a while when there's no when it's rock free, but right. the sand wash we were we were riding through was was boulder and rock infested. It was not just like the Sahara desert kind of sand wash. It was it was serious stuff. And but I guess it's worth mentioning because we didn't mention that, was the sandwich It's kind of the one, that and some of the super fast dirt roads. Yeah, For my bike, I would want a steering damper.
2: Uh, yes, yes. And
1: I understand why they don't put one on, because for well, a couple of reasons. One, it costs more money. That's obviously the number one reason. But also, there's different kinds of steering dampers and different riders are going to want a different style, you know, what works for them. And and so you kind of make sense to leave that off. And if, you, if I rode the single track only, uh, I would not I would not bother. I don't, I never felt like, wow, if I only had a steering damper, this would feel a lot better. If if I I wouldn't, I didn't want to lose any agility that, that, that the handling had again, with that weight of the bike, I didn't, you know, I, I don't want it to be harder to steer, but at the high speeds, certainly a steering damper is is mandatory and nobody nobody races it out in the desert i don't think without it right. and i don't know if the 250 i would assume the 250 kind of has the same issues
2: yeah i yeah i think we kind of talked about that same thing that the faster I'm, we're going over right you know the rough stuff like that you start feeling a little bit of this this movement up here that i'd rather feel less of so um yeah if you're going to be spending a lot of time doing that kind of writing it would make sense to put something on that could stabilize that a bit
1: right so you know having ridden these bikes like i said all summer they're just fantastic (laughs) there's a little as i've mentioned through here there are little improvements that i would make in personalizing the wr 450F to what i would my particular use and my particular style and what i'm doing but as far as yamaha making a motorcycle that they're outselling to a wide range of people it seems like they've really nailed it And it's, it's, it's the great trail bike that the ultimate trail bike at the same time manages to be a platform for serious off-road racing. And if you don't need the wide ratio transmission, Yamaha already does all that work by, with the YZ250 and 450FX uh, for these two bikes. But if you need that wide ratio transmission, it's great to, it's harder to fix that and change that on a bike than it is to just open up the power a bit
2: right and that makes it makes these bikes so versatile for trail riding you know as you said you you can you've got the the low speed stuff with the technical you can do real technical stuff sweet power on the bottom but then it's got enough to go you know the higher speeds it's a great bike there's so much capability in it and yet to me it it suits a wide range of trail rider
1: right and uh we didn't mention it that uh, WR-250F is 85.99, which to me makes it a big bargain. The WR-450F is 97.99. dollars I don't know why it's $1,200 more because you're looking at a, pretty much the same frame, same suspension, basically the same chassis and just a slightly, besides it's, not, it's an entirely different motor, but $1,200 different motor? I don't know about that. It's kind of, I think, one of those marketing things where they think they can get this much for a 250, they can get this much for a 450. Uh, I don't know if the 250 is a lost leader or the 450 is overpriced, but uh, for as, as durable as this bike's going to be, it's one of those ones that you can get and ride for a long time. So the 9799 isn't going to you know, break the bank over the long run. And it, it does so many of the right things right out of the box that you don't have to spend maybe money here and there that you would uh, if you were buying a, a less capable bike. Uh, I still wish there was something between, let's say the, WR250F and a Yamaha TTR250 because those bikes are are wildly different you know and for somebody like Kelly who has you know the seat height issues and many women do uh, you know she doesn't have any problem with the TTR250 seat height but then you have the lesser chassis the lesser suspension and the lesser power so you have to trade all those things away
2: right and I don't know that I would want to well no I would just say I wouldn't want to it's like the suspension and the and the power delivery on the WR250F is just such a joy and it makes as I've said it makes me ride better and lets it opens up more trails to me so I'd rather I'd rather trade off and be a little uncomfortable but I you know Yeah. If I can, if I can have it perfected to me, I I want it a little shorter just because I'm not running through all those 12 plus inches. Right. right. 10 inches uh, of travel travel would do it for you. And
1: actually it would do it for me. I mean, yeah, once in a while I might G out in the desert if I had it set up soft for the uh, single track. But, you know, other than that, I'm not if I'm not racing it. But again, if they did that, then they wouldn't be able to turn it into the race bike because you'd have the two short travel. So there's maybe it'd be another model that they have. But anyway, uh, as you can tell, we were super happy with the uh, WRs and that's all we have to say about them and hope you enjoy listening to us uh, talk about how much we love riding trail bikes uh, at a little bit faster than normal speeds on two truly premium motorcycles. So thanks for listening.
2: Thanks a lot.
0: In this second segment, Nick, TJ and myself discuss the motorcycle size progression through starting to ride motorcycles up to the expert level. Are you a newbie to the sport and wondering which way to go? Maybe you've been riding off-road for years and want to take to the street? Which size bike might be right for you? Obviously we can't give you a definitive answer to this highly personal question, but hopefully after you've heard about our individual journeys you might have a better idea of where to start i find it interesting that there's a definite progression in you know moving up the the ladder if you could say on motorcycles i know there are some people that just go straight out and buy a hayabusa but you know i think most i don't know is that right most sensible people don't yeah i mean
3: i think we should probably look at it from an American perspective, and then also acknowledge the rest of the world that doesn't do what Americans do, because I mean, there's a forced tier system and you know a displacement ladder that you grew up with in the UK. Australians have to do it. Pretty sure Spanish, yeah, everyone in the EU has to do it. Um, right, right. Like any any Asian country. They usually don't even have leader bikes because they're so expensive and just the, the price isn't, it's not even conducive to ownership. Um, <laughs> yeah, not because like the, the bike's physical price, that's a factor, but then insurance, getting a license for that. Cause you have to go through multiple tiers, but I mean, just quickly acknowledge that, but yeah, it's, um, something that's sort of baked yeah, into in and foreign riding, but in America, it's like, you always get the mistake that the kid that buys the R6 that has no business being on an R6, you know? So.
0: Yeah, Nick, Nick Einach told us uh, on, a, on one of the earlier podcasts that there was one guy turned up to the Champ School mm-hmm. and he bought a brand new R6 and he did not know how to ride at all. He had it delivered to the track and his very first lesson was at the Champ School on his new R6 and, and Nick said, He said, to be honest with you, that's kind of a waste of money. You know, he said, hey, we'll, we'll you know, take anyone. We can teach anyone to ride. But he said, tell you the truth, it's probably better if you at least know the basics of how to operate the controls, how to, you know, brake, use the clutch and that kind of stuff before you come to us. But he said he did it. And actually, he did great.
4: Is it the case here that you can just ride any size motor cycle from, from the get go?
3: You get your test. I mean, literally displacement is not a factor into no. it, is it? No, as long as you as long as you pass your M class and then you're you're licensed, you can go out and do whatever you want. And the other thing that's sort of a, a factor colloquially is um, you don't need a license to actually purchase a motorcycle or register it or do any of those other things. Now it might change state to state, but you can definitely purchase, register, and insure a bike without a motorcycle license in california right right
0: in, i mean insurance it has to be a factor i mean it is crazy if you're a 19 year old and you go out and buy yourself a jix a thousand and try and insure it the insurance payments are probably going to be more than the motorcycle payments
3: yeah and and you know a lot of that has to do with the, the bike as well so it, it becomes bike specific it's classification in terms of displacement classification in terms of genre so whether it's looked at as a sport bike quote-unquote or a touring bike or something else um, by the insurance company um just as an as a weird little anecdote i remember looking at and getting quotes for based on my driver's license for an fz07 versus a 1299 panigale and you know this is at the time for when those two bikes were on the market simultaneously but for the 1299, it was significantly cheaper. And the reason is, is because an FCO 7 is looked at as a higher risk vehicle because it has a higher tendency of crashing based on insurance statistical analysis <laughs> because that bike appeals to one, a wider audience and two, an audience that is um, presumably less experienced and therefore making more mistakes and therefore requiring more insurance claims uh, for that particular vehicle. So it's a higher risk, even though a 1299 right. is not even in the same realm as an FTO7.
0: so interesting, because essentially, I've no idea what the numbers would be, but say, three in 10 MTO7s get crashed and claimed on, whereas, you know, one
3: in 30 Panigales get crashed and claimed on.
4: Mm.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, we could only guess at the numbers, but based on what the the insurance numbers come back in terms of price, and speaking with different carriers, you can then infer that obviously the Panigale rider is, uh, according to insurance, uh, apparently a a less of a risk. Right. And you know, and insurance has a million other factors as well. You know, where you live, uh, whether you have uh, various uh, anti theft devices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, if you have a garage, if it's kept on the street these things all do factor in depending on the insurance carrier that you use. Some will ask those questions. Some won't.
0: And also the mileage
3: that you do as well.
0: Yeah. So if you're using it every day and commuting on it, you know, and going through city traffic, you're a much higher risk than a weekend warrior who's using it to go out and, and cruise the canyons.
3: Exactly. So mileage is, you know, they do equalize a little bit. However, that weekend warrior guy is not going out there and doing the consistent mileage year to year that, you know, the random track day and sport sport bike enthusiast is doing.
0: So, what what do you what what do you think is like the sort of the typical motorcycle progression, as it were? In other words, if a if some young guy's listening to this and he's thinking, I'd really like to get myself a Ninja Six Fifty, is that is this too much bike? I mean, what, what's your thoughts on that?
3: Yes and no. So, I, I think if we just look at the American displacement ladder, you you then immediately turn your attention towards the Japanese manufacturers because they have the most fleshed out offerings overall, that you can get something from a beginner bike all the way up to, you know, your last and, you know, uh, final, final step on that ladder. But let's use like Yamaha or Kawasaki as an example, like the Ninja 650. Sure. It depends on the person, right? That's why I initially answered with yes or no. You never know someone's skill level. You never know how fast or how slow they're going to take to riding a motorcycle, you know, everyone wishes they could jump on and be Johnny Ray and Casey Stoner and Mark Marquez. The reality is we're all, um, us, right? So <laughs> there's that, but I, I would say for some people, some people that have a knack for it and sort of a natural ability, perhaps
0: they've grown up on dirt bikes. Yeah. You know, they went out on dirt bikes, so they already have the control yeah. down pretty well. Yeah. They have a foundation it's really just a matter of adapting to to a street bike.
3: Yeah, I mean, sight unseen. If someone has never ridden a bike before and they walk up to me and they go, I'm buying a Ninja 650, I would probably recommend no. And then beyond that, I would say, well, let's just start at the, the bottom of what we can get in the Kawasaki lineup, which would be the Z125 Pro, which is basically the, the Grom, <laughs> yes, you know? Yeah. And as hilarious as, as people might look at that thing, they go, it's a total toy. I'm like, no, you learn the general mechanics of how to ride a bike. Now, if you're really looking at getting a bike, a straight up full size motorcycle right out of the gate, then you go for something like the Ninja 400 or R3, something in that CBR 300, whatever. You're looking at those bikes because one, they're physically lighter, cheaper to maintain. You have a lower cost of entry and you can find them on the used market pretty affordably as well. But more importantly, and above anything else, you're dealing with a lower performance ceiling. So you can understand how things accelerate, how they decelerate, how brakes work, how shifting works, how you can apply these things in a much more controllable um, environment and something that you will understand and learn how to grasp and utilize versus jumping on a 1000 or a 600 and immediately being overwhelmed by that machine where The 400, you can come to terms with it and understand it at a much, much faster rate without, you know, just being saddled with, uh, you know, fear of the actual thing that you're trying to ride.
4: Yes. And the physical thing is key because obviously you, when you're learning, you're doing slower riding and you're going to be dropping the bike. You need to be able to pick it up and get going. So I think that's, that's important. And of course, budget.
0: Yeah. I mean, all three of TJ's sons all ride. And her middle son um, owns a Ninja 300.
4: Mm.
0: Um, and he, he gets on that with that really well, doesn't he? He, he uses does. that I mean, every day.
4: Also, they're, they're cool looking. The, the smaller bikes nowadays are nice looking. But I think one of the main reasons for going straight with the bigger bikes is just to look cool, be cool, pose value.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's the appeal of the larger bikes. and And I think for not just an American audience or an Asian audience or a European audience, the, the bigger bikes are what attract people to the sport initially. I mean, we all see an R1 if you're a sport bike fan or you see, you know, if you're a motocross fan, you see CRF450s, KX450s, just the top tier motocross stuff. And people don't realize that it takes a considerable amount of skill to wrangle those bikes to the ability that their favorite racers are doing. I mean, it's a, an ungodly amount of talent that we're dealing with and not only talent but practice dedication etc 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 the weekend warrior is not going to do that so you know jumping into that it's like jumping into the deep end of the pool and not knowing how to swim you need to <laughs> yeah you know start on the kiddie side it's okay to use a kickboard it's fine maybe maybe in some floaties it's fine <laughs> yeah yeah, that's true. What did, what did you start out on, TJ?
4: I had a Suzuki GT 185, which may sound harmless and a good bike to, to learn on, but it actually had drop handlebars, ace handlebars, and they were already touching the tank before I got on, so I couldn't manoeuvre easily. But I thought that's what riding a bike was all about, so I persevered, um, struggled on. I didn't actually crash it. And then, interestingly enough, a few people pointed out the error of my ways, and I moved on to a, a same-size engine, a 185, but a TS-185, more like a trail bike, and I just loved it, absolutely loved it, and didn't really, back then I would have been 18 years old, feel the need for change. I was poodling to work and back into London, getting through traffic. When I decided I wanted to go overseas abroad and do a bit of touring, friends pointed out to me that I couldn't just hack along the freeway or the motorway, 70 miles an hour, scared, <laughs> surprised me, <laughs> and that was my reason for getting a bigger bike. <laughs> yeah, I started on um, a GT185, GT185,
0: and then she ended up buying a Kawasaki 400.
4: Yes, in those
0: it. days it was called the Z400,
4: Z400J, the
0: C400J. It was just a naked upright across the frame, it was sort of the the big competitor to the Honda Four Hundred Four. It was a really nice.
4: It nice turned bike. out nice and practical, but I I bought it on looks. I just liked the look of it. I had no real knowledge of motorcycles apart from much bigger bikes that guys had been riding all around me, like Kawasaki Z Nine Hundreds, GT Seven Fifty, Suzuki GT Seven Fifties, um, and I didn't have the confidence to go that big. So I just chose a sort of middle-sized bike that I liked the look of and practiced a lot on that, ran it in, and then went and did many miles.
0: Yeah. How
3: about you, Nick? What did you start out on? I started riding dirt bikes as a kid, and the first dirt bike I ever rode was an RM125 two-stroke. And it was pretty high strung because of its past. It was raced almost exclusively by a motocross kid, and I had no um, motorcycling background. Uh, so I learned how to ride on that. The actual first motorcycle that I ever rode and shifted was a CR500, which has an interesting and legendary history for being a terrible, unrideable beast.
0: How old were you that on a CR500? <laughs>
3: I, I think I was probably about 12 or 13 years old. It had way too much compression for me to kickstart. Um, the bike was just monstrously tall for my size, because I think at the time I was only maybe... I don't know, five, five, three, five, four. (laughs) How did you end up with that? I mean, how did you end up, how did you
0: end up with that? I mean, your, your parents bought it for you because your, because your dad rides, doesn't he?
3: Correct. He had the CR 500. He got back into motorcycles, you know, um, when I was an infant, he had bikes and, you know, the the seventies and eighties, et cetera, et cetera. Then got rid of them for a little while and then decided later on that he was going to get bikes again. So he picked up a, a used CR and did that and then he was like well do you want to ride and I can just kind of teach you how to ride in this parking lot so you know that started that I would say you know I didn't learn how to ride on the CR at all I learned how to just kind of slip the clutch and nudge it around the parking lot and realized that I was terrified of it without even knowing its legendary history (laughs) you know it's it's a big powerful it was an extremely powerful motorcycle for the time Um, still is technically and uh, it's It's got a a crazy history. So the CR500 is something that I do think people should just kind of, you know, watch a couple of YouTube videos for. But for my case, started on a 125. um, And it was, you know, a great little bike for my size, um, doing trail riding in Southern California, desert riding. You know, it's, um, at the time, I I would say, you know, I, I was starting to get a little older, a little taller. And, you know, I was into two wheeled stuff anyway so I was more apt to sort of learning technique and pushing, and that definitely helped. You have to have the desire to get into it and also, you know, be a little bit comfortable with making mistakes, but um, from there, I then got a 250 and then just started riding street bikes probably a number of years after that, but I did the classic mistake that we mentioned before of Getting on a bike that was totally inappropriate. I mean, I learned how to ride street bikes on a Ducati um, 1000 SS. So the early 2000s Terre Blanc uh, L twins. And, you know, those bikes were really good in a number of ways. And they were very representative of the times and a number of other ways, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy dry clutches. So heavy springs are super heavy to use. Um, for someone that's more experienced they get used to them but for someone that has no clue that's coming off of 250s
4: for a new rider yeah that's a bit of an animal <laughs>
3: that's crazy yeah and um you're just dealing with a lot of torque a lot of it and a, a pretty aggressive uh riding position you know something that tj touched on with the, the classic cafe riding position when you're trying to learn the fundamentals <laughs> that super sport riding position cafe racer stuff not the best no not the best.
4: no no turning circle and less visibility you can't physically turn and see everything as easily because you're inexperienced and i had little mirrors on the end of the bars so all in all stupid really but, yeah but yeah, i wish I-, I wish we'd started on on um, dirt bikes you know i hear that a lot in america kids start on dirt bikes and i think that's just fantastic
0: yeah it's a it's a big advantage for me my first my first real motorcycle was a honda 90 that i had uh, I, i've never ridden off-road it was just a street bike i mean this was you know back in the sort of the mid 70s when i learned to ride so so uh, this was like a mid 60s honda like a, a honda cub so it had the sort of the full motorcycle look to it it wasn't a step through but essentially it was the 90 cc single cylinder motor and drum brakes and what have you and uh, it would do it would go as fast as you like as long as it was about 50 miles an hour <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, you know but actually it was good to learn to ride on. I had that for about a year. then I bought a, a new and in those days these were actually um, in the 70s Harley they had a badged Italian bike that was I think it was actually made by Maki was essentially Italian it was a 250cc single cylinder two-stroke but it was badged Harley Davidson and it was actually a really really pretty nice bike and it handled well and had Brembo brakes on it it was awesome so I learned to ride on that and 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 uh, passed my test which then allowed me as you say we had the tiered system in those days where you could ride up to 250 cc until you got your test and then in once England, you once yes. you got your full license in England then you could go to unlimited. Mm-hmm. So once I got my test, I then uh, swapped that out for a Suzuki GT550, sort of nice middleweight, you know, kind of bike. And I had that for a couple of years and then went on to bigger bikes, GT750s and Kawasaki 900s. But I, I think, I, I mean, interestingly, although I'm as, as nonconformist as I typically am, I think that is more of a normal kind of progression, you know, where I started off on a small bike and, and, and worked my way up to the bigger bikes. So I never, I never got myself into a situation where I felt intimidated by a bike. It always seemed like I learned to ride the bike I was on and I started to outgrow it. And then I would feel like, okay, it's time to move up to the next, the next level. But that isn't, that doesn't sound like that's what happened to you. <laughs>
3: Stop. No, no, I, I basically did the, the classic American, um, motorcyclist move where I got the thing that I thought was cool. and. I, you know, on the advice of some other people that probably um, were being a little bit too encouraging, um, <laughs> you know, and ended up with a Ducati 749, you know, of its day, you're still talking about a hundred and change horsepower, right. a good amount of torque, and again, super sport riding position. Right. Um, and then being ill-equipped to actually use that with any competency, it just makes learning those fundamental skills a lot more difficult now it's it's not impossible to learn you can do it i did it other people have done it countless times it just makes that learning curve much 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 steeper so like we said you know starting on the lower displacement bikes because they're lighter weight because they're they have less horsepower you know things just happen at a, a more reasonable reasonable pace you're able to build those fundamental skills and then like Arthur had mentioned, jump up to the next rung of the ladder, you know, something like a traditional middleweight, whether that's a parallel twin, inline four, whatever your style is, whether you're riding sport or just common street riding on a standard conventional bike or adventure riding, these things all apply. So,
0: right. You liked the uh, the KTM 200 when you first came here, didn't you?
3: I did.
4: Well, I feel I've been a bit ripped off over my biking career because I sort of started backwards. I didn't have, I was actually banned from going on motorcycles by my parents who didn't have motorcycles and so the people you mentioned, friends um, (laughs) you know, plonked me onto a bike and I rode up the road and just fell off because I didn't actually know how to stop it. So I from my point of view I once I I I took a long time to acquire skills that can easily be taught in a shorter time and I feel would have been safer. Um, and so, yes, when I got onto the KTM 200 by that stage, I was just able to ride and and take full advantage of, of doing things properly. And I know that sounds a bit boring, but it sure is helpful. But
0: the KTM 200, when you, when you, uh, you, she went and did like the total control NSF um, course. Yes, I
4: did. Yes. And, um, and,
0: and that was when you first pulled up, I seem to remember the instructor saying something like, oh, that's the perfect bike to do it on.
4: He did, yes, he did. Um, the ideal, well, again, the physical size, you can move it around easily. If you drop it, you can pick it up. And just manoeuvrable, you know, as Nick said, you need to be able to wrangle the bike that you're riding because you don't know how to, and that's, that's your learning stage. And that's the first training course I've ever done. And yeah. It made a huge difference. Just being in a safe environment and, environment and doing things like, going top speed and stopping suddenly full-on brakes without waiting for such an occurrence on the roads. (laughs) Yeah, it's very helpful. And and I think, personally, I actually think that there should be a training course, an obligatory training course for new riders. There is in Australia, sorry to harp on about other countries, but that's where I've been. And in Australia, my, my boys who've learned to ride were just astounded. I said something one day to one of them he was like, well they taught you that though you know how to pick up a motorcycle it was that and I was like no, nope, nobody's ever taught me that I just had to find out but yeah they had to do a training course before they could get on the road a practical and theory.
0: so so in terms of sort of displacement progression, what, what do you think Nick is what's your take as a, as a born and bred American which neither of us have been? What's your kind of take on how a typical career should go?
3: You know, just looking at it logically and always erring on the side of caution for a number of reasons, you know, just for longevity of the sport and encouraging more responsible behavior. I always recommend whether it's in a story or just someone talking to me on the side of the road, always start with the basics. Like TJ pointed out, you want something cheap, light approachable from a horsepower perspective and something that, you know, the, the other factor that plays into the the cheap part is maybe motorcycling isn't actually for you. So do you really want to go and plonk down 10, 15 grand on a bike that you're not really in love with and not just the bike, but you might not actually love motorcycling overall. So lower that investment bar, you buy a Ninja 400 or something, even brand new, that's, you know, 5,000, whatever dollars, you can recover that financially. And if you love it, then you learn on it and you keep going. You go to the middleweights. Then you go to the quote unquote middleweights that we have now that are up in the eight and nine hundred and uh, you know, eventually land on a leader bike. But that's all if you want to keep climbing the rung. I know plenty of people that race and ride middleweights, and that's they've bounced around from lightweight bikes up to the one thousands, then settled back down on middleweights and even gone lower i know guys that have raced 1000s for years and now they're racing r3s and ninja 400s but yeah it's you know always start start at the bottom so you can build that foundation of skills and then just climb each rung you know depending on what your needs be like tj pointed out doing commuting on the little cafe was good in the beginning and then when you guys needed to start hitting the countryside and crossing the channel and do stuff like that <laughs> going into france you needed something bigger because uh well I, you know even even from my perspective a ninja 400 trying to tour across the country doesn't doesn't cut it you know, <laughs> um you can do it and people have there's always those stories of some guy crossing the himalayans on a 125 to those people i salute them but there is an easier way yeah, Sorry,
4: no need for right that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's and, and you occasionally hear of, you know, sort of I've heard dealer stories about, you know, guys that have no experience that walk around and go, um, no, I want to buy the Hayabusa. Mm. And it's just, you know, it's crazy. You occasionally hear of people in, in, you know, that come out of dealerships and they crash the bike before they even leave the parking lot. Um, but I, I hope those are relatively rare. I mean, I think those are sort of, they make for a good story, but hopefully there's not too many of them. But I mean, from a from an American perspective, what about Harley Davidson? I mean, they've been making, like, you know, Iron 883s and, you know, the, the, the smaller Sportsters for years. So those are, that's a pretty good place to start. It's not what you and I would probably call an entry-level no, bike. No, I
4: think that still is too big to, to actually start.
0: I mean, I don't know. Is it? I, it's difficult for us to tell because, to me, it looks like an entry-level bike, and, the and it's is- the smallest Harley.
4: And once you can ride, and that's where these friends come in who, who could ride, they forget what it was like to be a beginner. They literally forget. They just put you on and go ride it. But, you know, there are lots, lots more, um, there's just lots more to it than just going in a straight line. Anybody can ride a big bike in a straight line fast as you like, but once you've got to move it or stop it in an emergency or maneuver.
0: But if you're, if you're locked into a brand, if you're, all your friends ride Harleys and your dad rode a Harley and you're a dyed in the wool Harley guy and you want to start riding what you, you're not going to go out and buy yourself a, you know, a KTM 200 or a Ninja 300 or whatever. I mean, you're going to start on a sports step, presumably.
3: Yeah. You know, there's, there's that, that, um, that perspective as well. And I don't think that just applies to an American audience. I do think that you're going to have the, the sort of the push and pull from your social group whatever it may be you know if you get into motorcycles on your own then you know you're making your own decisions and just whatever you come across and your influences here and there but if you're getting into motorcycles via family like I did my pathway was dirt bikes and that's because dirt bikes were there now if you could easily make the argument that I could have gotten into bikes via like Arthur mentioned through Harley if a Harley had been sitting there instead of a CR500. Um and and that's one thing to consider and with the displacement with cruisers in general it's always um it's a tough thing to sort of quantify without really getting into the nuts and bolts of it. You know a, a V-twin 883 makes a relatively um modest horsepower value in comparison to a lot of parallel twins and inline four engines. So if you look at it from the numbers, the numbers seem a lot more approachable. You're still still dealing with a lot of torque, a lot of weight, and all of the same observations apply. And then also you have to apply the fact that these are cruisers. So they're not necessarily ridden in the same way that someone with a sport bike mentality would be riding. Um, I would still stick with TJ in the sense that buying those bikes right out of the gate that's a pretty heavy investment overall. Mm. And I wouldn't start with something cheap. You know, the, the Honda rebel, the Honda rebel didn't change for a long time for a good reason. You know, it was one of the MSF bikes, super easy to learn on. And then plenty of people that started on rebels jumped up to Harley's because now that they had some confidence that uh, they went up. So again, I always fall back on the, you know, start with the basics, lower displacement stuff. But to me, Someone really diving in, you know, on a on an 883 or a 1200, not totally advisable. I think it's more doable than someone doing, um, you know, the, the typical super sport leap into motorcycling world. But again, the same ob- observations apply. It's you're you're just not going to learn as quickly and as comfortable.
4: Yeah, and you could put yourself off. I think Nick's right. You're drawn to to the sort of crowd you're going to hang with, as it were, if you're brother or sister has got you know a Harley Davidson and you love that lifestyle and that look you're going to want to start on a cruiser I think there are the options available now like the Honda Rebels of this world you know they're they're well respected and I think they're great to start something that size and not as as you're saying the bigger Harley Davidson's are. They
0: are yeah and one of the things that Nick touched on earlier and it's this is such a huge thing is physical size Mm. Um, because it makes a big difference. It really does. If you are able to touch the ground and flat feet, and you can put your feet flat on the ground, it is a whole lot more confidence-inspiring than if you're a 13-year-old trying to ride a CR500, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, you need a step stool just to swing your leg over it. I mean, I cannot imagine how you even stop that thing. But but physical size makes a huge difference. And motorcycling is so much about confidence, just your internal confidence. If you're able to, if you're wobbling down the road or the parking lot or whatever it is, and you're terrified and you're ready to just grab anything because you just don't feel good, that is not a good situation to be in. And yes. you won't have any fun. And you really- The
4: anxiety takes over and then you don't get anywhere. That's, yeah, we're talking about right. learning and. Once you can ride, you can ride anything, any size. So it doesn't matter if you can touch the ground.
3: Yeah, and that that's a crucial point that, you know, both you guys are hitting on. It's, if this is supposed to be something that we do for enrichment and enjoyment, then why should we take approaches that are inherently um, going to cause anxiousness or fear? So, you know, I know the appeal because I was, you know, a I, uh, I, I, victim is probably a hard, hard used words are used in that context but you know we'll just run with it because you know i went into the the aggressive middleweight supersport camp right away as much as i love those bikes i should have gone for something that would have allowed me to get to those bikes much easier instead of learning the hard way you know and, and to my credit and countless people like me it worked out but there's an easier way, you know, there, there really is.
0: Yeah. So what's the, uh, what's the conclusion that we're reaching here then? Is it just the sort of the tried and tried and cliched start on something small. And then so many people ask us this, you know, if you start on a small bike, are you going to just outgrow it in the first week? And suddenly you're sitting there going, Oh shit, I should have bought something a whole lot bigger to kind of grow into, because now I'm bored with this little bike. I know what I'm doing. And it's going to depreciate like a brick, and I'm locked into some payments. I should have just bought something a little bit more available for me to grow into.
4: No, I don't think I don't think it would depreciate like a brick. I think it's like the housing market. You'll always get the new buyers coming up. You will always get, you know, you'll you'll soon be able to move up when you're ready to. I think it's I think it's crucial to start on something small, manageable, and to have training.
3: These are all valid points too, and you. You go in and just as a basic consumer, you always want the most for your money, right? So you're always thinking, well, if I'm going to step up already, then why would I want to start at the bottom? I could probably just jump to the middleweight and be cool. You know, there, you could very well be that person. And, you know, there are countless examples of that occurring. Now, it is a little bit more to invest multiple times over the course of your career, but, you know, understand that you will graduate, change by change genres and find the things that you like. And this is just part of the, the journey of a motorcyclist or anything else, whether you're talking about surfing or whatever, I mean, the the, the same rules apply. Um, you're going to have to find out what you like and how to get to it. And that's going to create a couple changes along the way. But yeah, that is a, a consideration when you're going to the dealer and go, oh man, you know what? I, I'm just going to do the the fc07 the you know the the ktm 890 now whatever you know it's i understand the appeal just don't get caught up in it and just understand that <laughs> there's a, a history of people making this mistake before you
1: <laughs>
3: and uh i realize that everyone wants to be the exception to the rule i think i'm that all the time and i'm never not so um or i'm never the exception to the rule i should say but uh yeah, it's just kind of listening to the guidance of more educated people in that circumstance. Um, but I, I understand the appeal, I get it. And when it comes to gear, I will say that line of thought is actually helpful. Now I, I think back to when I first started riding street, even with dirt bikes, when it, when it came to purchasing gear, I went all in on the thing that they told me was the most protective. So sort of sight unseen, I got the beefiest motocross boots I could, I could find. It was, well, you're just riding trails. You could get away with this. And I'm like, Nope, don't care. (laughs) I don't, yeah, they're $500 boots. Yes. I don't have money. Yes. This is a terrible investment, but it's better than going to the hospital. So, you know, that, that mentality it's, you know, get the best thing that you can possibly get without forcing you to eat ramen for a month and a half, (laughs) Right. (laughs) you know, don't, don't skimp on gear. And, Know so that those those, that's the inverse of the bike problem, it's always you know, get the best gear that you can possibly afford and get the most reasonable bike that you can afford and learn on, and then build into it and then get the cool stuff later on, right? Because then you already have badass gear to match it, so
4: yes, It's it's the impatience of youth. I think most people start when riding motorcycles when they're young, and you just want to be up there and looking cool and have it all at once. Whereas, as you say, the gear you can get family and friends to club together and get your gifts. You can buy it secondhand, but just get the good stuff, you know, not helmets secondhand, but, you know, you can buy um, clothing secondhand because your style might change. But regarding just going and buying a big motorcycle, I I think it's an idea to maybe put a bit of onus on dealers. If they were to offer a course, if, you know, a guy or girl comes in and wants this huge monster bike, they go, well, hang on, we actually offer this training course you know, that would normally cost a couple of hundred dollars. Go on that, see how you feel and come back. And then you're putting people, I think you're giving them more of a a mindset for making an informed choice. The the risk of sounding boring. (laughs) I think the dealers can help a lot because that's where most people go to buy the bikes.
0: I don't want to say that all dealers are irresponsible, but a lot of them, unfortunately, all they see are dollar signs. But my next door neighbor learned to ride. He was a middle-aged guy or sort of approaching middle age, I think like sort of late thirties, early forties, he learned to ride on a Ninja 400, was very comfortable on it. He kept going into the local Harley dealer and the local Harley, he was like, okay, I I, I keep, I've been renting this Ninja. I'm ready to buy, but I'm very much a beginner. What should I get? And the dealer just pushed him into, I think it was a fat Bob he didn't push him into like a sports store or whatever. And this guy kept saying, but I've only ever ridden a Ninja 400 and not very confident. And the dealer was like, no, 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 you'll grow into this. And you know, it's all down to your right wrist and don't worry, just you know take it easy and you'll be fine. Well, he took delivery of the bike. He pulled out of the parking lot. He, the light, the traffic lights turned green. He shot straight across the road and into a brick wall. and he was horribly badly injured, Uh and I was talking to him, and I think he was about three years into this massive court case. I mean, he had serious injuries to him. I mean, he was still sort of standing and talking and walking, but needless to say, he was never going to try another motorcycle again, and he was in the process of sort of, you know, suing the dealer and suing, I mean, you name it, he was suing
4: everybody. That's a bad experience.
0: And that's a really bad sort of cautionary tale, And, and he said to me, he said, And what really upsets me was he said, I kept saying to the sales guy, you know what my experience level is. I'm just going to have to trust your judgment. What do you want to sell me? And, you know, and the guy just steered him wrong. So, you know, like I say, fortunately that's fairly rare, but it would be, it would be nice if, if the dealers were, let's, 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 let's assume that some, most of the dealers are fairly decent and sort of steer, try and steer people correctly.
4: Yeah. That sounds like a bad experience case, but yeah. let's get back to have some beginners. I just think it would be helpful if dealers push them in the direction of some training.
3: There definitely are plenty of, you know, uh, dealers that I've had personal experiences with. And there's countless reputable dealers throughout, you know, the country. And you know, just we're speaking anecdotally here, but you know, it, it really reinforces the idea that motorcycling overall is a personal experience so the onus whether you're accepting bad advice or not really comes down to the individual making the decisions for themselves as much as i would you know throw some blame at a, a bad dealer for misinforming a potential customer or a customer really you have to own this stuff on your own so going back to the the latter it's you always want to err on the side of the caution because you know that if you climb the ladder, you know, you, you start at the bottom, go to middle weights, whatever, maybe deviate from different genres. You're going to have that foundation and that bag of trips, tricks that comes with you the whole way. You know, there, there's plenty of horror stories when it comes to dealers for a variety of reasons. It's just nature of the beast dealing with, you know, the consumer versus retail, these things happen. And, you know, in my experience, and I think most people's experiences there are trustworthy dealers, just like there are trustworthy retail shops, you just have to find the one that you like and you get along with. But more importantly, I think when it comes to motorcycling, it just reinforces the fact that the individual is the one with the onus here you really have to be introspective and think about what you're doing before you get on to something or purchase something so You know, yes, listen to advice, but always erring on the side of caution, the safest way to get into bikes and get into bigger bikes is really just building that skill set. You know, every time you get on a a new motorcycle, you've taken that skill from something that you were on before. So if you learn that those foundational skills on a lower displacement bike, get up to a middle weight, keep building, and then, you know, move up again, that's just going to help you stay safe and continue your career as as a motorcyclist. And I think that's what's really important because we can think of a lot of anecdotal um, examples of people getting on bikes that they really have no business being on in the same way that, you know, there are plenty of sports cars out there and uh, we can just take a little gander at YouTube for all of the Ferrari fails or something. (laughs) You know, some guy that has no business driving XYZ and, uh, you know, it's case in point. The skills weren't there, so you know that's why I'm, I'm such an advocate of climbing the ladder, and then beyond that, going and seeking further riding training. Because, like TJ said, it's not mandated initially from uh, or within the United States. You have to get your license. You have to pass DMV courses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's no initial training thing. That's all done on your own. So climb the ladder go and seek that advanced training. It's gonna make you happier, safer, more comfortable, more confident. It's kind of the bottom line for me.
4: Yes, I think Nick's right. You have to look at, you, you know yourself and what kind of a person you are and if you're going to do something sensible or something crazy or somewhere in between and to get into and onto motorcycling, road riding particularly, you have to look at it as an overall expense, part of which is getting some training and getting some gear is not just the motorcycle. It's not the same as just getting into a car. Just any old ordinary day, you have to think about gear and being able to defend yourself on the road. And that takes training. I think just having that initial training would make a huge difference to the amount of things that go wrong and just make for a more enjoyable riding career.
0: I, I would agree to that. The only other thing I would add, which I mentioned earlier, is when you go to buy your first motorcycle, make sure you're comfortable physically on it stand there astride the bike and make sure that you can flat foot and you can even sort of wiggle it side to side a little bit and you don't feel like the thing's going to overwhelm you and and topple over um and i and especially ladies I mean, we've got a lot of you know ladies in the sport and coming into the sport and you've got sort of uh you know young ladies coming in and and they might not have the physical strength for a big bike don't let your don't let peer pressure push you into something too big you know like you say there's you know the honda rebels uh you know the ktm 200 i mean these are all bikes with you know modest seat heights and even if you're really um you know relatively you're relatively short inseam you can flat foot on on any one of those bikes and mm-hmm. and you'll feel you'll start off feeling comfortable before the engine even, even
3: starts up. Yeah, and that's, that's another point that we did touch on, you know, a couple of different points vaguely, and Arthur really drove home right now. It, it's just being comfortable physically on the bike. You know, make sure that the bike proportionally fits you as a, as a person. Now, there, there's ways to fix that on the aftermarket with rear sets and different handlebars, but make sure that the, the baseline is in your realm, you know, it's, it's tough because, and I think we can all agree to this, you know, Arthur and I stand at about, you know, five foot, 10 inches. There are bikes that I get on that make me kind of reassess what I'm doing and what I plan to do. And I, I would, I would sort of aim that, that uh, that opinion at big adventure bikes, anything that's a large off-road oriented adventure bike, because it's physically tall, physically large, Fairly powerful, so then I have to reset what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it. And the only difference is is that I kind of walk into that situation knowing that. But a first time rider getting on one of those, no, that's going to be kind of a recipe for disaster. Um, so, you know, understanding not only your skill limits but your physical limitations as well. You know, if you're a new rider, you don't have those. That muscle memory baked in. You also kind of don't know what you're doing. So, being able to put your feet on the ground, that's a huge confidence booster. If you ride motocross or you ride off road, bikes tend to be taller anyway, especially as the bikes get better um, in terms of quality and purpose. Um, you know, when you compare a beginner dirt bike, uh, say like a KLX 230 or something like that, versus a KX uh, 250 or 450. The seat heights are dramatically different. Uh, They get taller as the travel gets longer. And so being on tall kind of precarious bikes, that's just something that you get used to. And uh, it's no longer precarious because you know what you're doing.
4: That's right. You've got the skills to you as a mature rider and and all of us at this stage of life to make a decision about um, riding a taller bike because you can. Um, I can say from my experience that once you have anxieties and fears, it takes an, an awful lot of effort and mindset. And I don't, I don't know how to word it, but anyway, it takes a lot to get over fear and anxiety. And if you start off on a bike that you're not completely comfortable with, as Arthur said, you can put your feet down and, and move around, then you're constantly thinking about where you're going or can I get gas yet? Because I, will I be able to stop and turn in that gas station? You know, where is this party? I'm going to. Will I find the address while I'm trying to ride? So all of those things you need to you need to alleviate by being comfortable to start with.
0: Okay, all right. So I think we've uh, I think we've pretty much covered the full range. It's uh, be honest with yourself. Start off with something something sensible within your limits. If you already have experience riding then sure, you maybe look at a middleweight, something that you will be able to grow into if if you need street skills. But be honest with yourself. If That's all you need. If you need street skills rather than machine learning skills, um, you already know how to ride a bike well and you don't have to necessarily start off on the smallest bike out there. But get some training and try and do it properly. Look at it as a whole package. Um, And, uh, and, you know, try and do it properly. Be honest with yourself. That sound about right.
3: Sounds like a good summary. <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me.
0: All right. Thank you, folks. Appreciate you joining. Nice Appreciate time. your insight. Cool. Cool. Thanks. Talk to you soon. bye.